Bibles this evening, if you would, and let's turn together to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll start there tonight, and uh, last Wednesday evening, we began this two-part study on the will of God, and uh, last week, uh, I mostly introduced the concept of God's will, uh, and then I, I did cover one point last week, and that was God's will concerning our redemption, and we, we discussed at length last week. Uh, the will of God concerning the redemption of man. And uh, I don't think we need to uh, readdress any of those, those points. And, and we discussed it uh, directly. And, and I hope that you um, learned something from that study and, and were blessed by that. So tonight, I would like to look at uh, two more areas of consideration surrounding uh, God's will for his children. And of course, there are many, many considerations here when we talk about the will of God. And I hope that by looking at these three areas that we're, we are going to look at over these two weeks, that you'll get the idea of how we can discern God's will for our life in every, every aspect of our lives. Whatever it may be, we can go to the scripture and we can find God's will for his children concerning that particular area of our lives. So last week we looked at God's will concerning redemption, and tonight I'll begin, secondly, by considering God's will concerning our relationships. God's will concerning our relationships. Uh, if you look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll begin reading at verse number 14, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. Beginning with verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Let's pray before we go any further. Our Father, thank you so much for your love and your mercy and your grace that we enjoy so freely. And Lord, as we come together tonight, we, we, we come here for the purpose that you might instruct us and that you might teach us. Therefore, Holy Spirit of God, I pray that uh, you would be the teacher, that the words that I speak uh, would not be from man's wisdom, but from God's, uh, God's testimony and God's witness in his word. Teach us, Holy Spirit, instruct us, guide us into truth. And we'll thank you and we'll praise you for all these things. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, from the passage of Scripture that we read just a moment ago, it's clear to see that there is a choice to be made concerning the relationships that we keep. We are admonished in verse 17 to come out from among them and be ye separate. Now, the them referred to in verse 17 is identified in verse 14, and it is the unbelievers. Uh, this, is, this is those that are not of the household of faith. In other words, the lost and unregenerate souls. Now, I must interject here that it is impossible 
for any of us to be completely isolated from the unsaved world. It's impossible. There is absolutely no way that you are going to be completely isolated from unbelievers. And God knows this. So God is not asking us to do something that is impossible to do. Jesus prayed about this this situation of we as believers being in the world and being exposed to unbelievers. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 17. Let's all turn together. It's just a couple of books back toward the front. John chapter 17. And we're going to look at verse number, beginning at verse 9. John chapter 17, beginning at verse number 9. And here the Lord is praying for his disciples and ultimately, as it is applicable to you and I tonight, he's praying for us. So beginning at verse number 9, we read, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And here, of course, he's speaking about the elect children of God. Okay, verse 10. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And here he's talking about uh, Judas Iscariot. And I find something interesting that throughout the entire word of God, you will nowhere will you find where Jesus called Judas unto, his, his, unto himself. Uh, that's kind of interesting to me that Jesus never, we don't see any reference of Jesus calling Judas. Judas was that son of perdition here, as the scripture says, that, that the scripture might be fulfilled, that he would be betrayed by one of his own. Verse 13. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. See that? Jesus didn't pray that God would remove us from the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. And, and we find here in John chapter uh, 17 that Jesus did not pray that God would isolate us from unbelievers. He didn't pray that God would remove us from the world, but he prayed that God would, would preserve us and keep us as we dwelt in this world. We are in the world, and we are in the world to be witnesses of Christ. This is why we are left in the world. We are left in this world to be witnesses of Christ. But we are not in the world, listen to me carefully, we are not in the world to be in fellowship with the unrighteousness that exists therein. Did you, did you get that? We're here to be witnesses for Christ, uh, for Christ. We are not here to be in fellowship with the unrighteousness of this world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul states this, All things are lawful unto me, 
But all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me. But I will not be brought under the power of any. Paul here states that all things are lawful to me. By, now, by this term, all things uh, being lawful, Paul is not telling us, he's not saying that we have liberty to ignore God's laws. God's grace has set us free from judgment. I stress the word judgment under the law. God's grace has set us free from the judgment under the law, but it does not set us free from the obligation we have to obey all things concerning God's law. Here is where many Christians err. They, they use the liberty that we have in Christ as a license to do whatever they want to do. And God's grace has set us free from judgment under the law, but it has not excused us from our obligation to obey God's laws. To sum it up, grace has made us free from the judgment of sin and has empowered us or enabled us to obey the laws of God. Whereas before grace was imparted unto us, we were unable to live in accordance to God's laws. Before you were saved, did you ever once, uh, you know, I used, to, I used to think about all the time, I don't want to do these things. But I just don't seem to be able to control myself. Do you ever experience that? Uh, well, that's because in the flesh we're under the law. And the law is a schoolmaster and the law, the law convicts us. But under grace, we are free from the judgment of sin. But we are bound and empowered to obey the laws of God. We're now enabled enabled by the grace of God to do just that. So when Paul talks about things lawful, he is referring to those things that that do not violate God's perfect law. Those actions that are not necessarily sinful by their nature. Uh, in other words, it's things that we would we would commonly call the preferences. That's what Paul is is talking about when he can, when he uses the term lawful. He's not, he's not giving us a license to sin. But he's, he's, he's saying that there are some things that, that, are not a, that do not violate God's law, and, and therefore they are lawful. They're not, they are lawful for me. They're, it's okay for me to do them. But he goes on to say all things are not expedient. And by expedient, he means appropriate or practical to one's personal testimony. Now, there's nothing wrong with riding motorcycles, right? Nothing wrong with riding motorcycles. You guys that ride motorcycles, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with leather, right? We have leather belts and we have leather shoes and and leather wallets and things like that. Nothing wrong with chains. Chains are good to chain up a dog. You You can use chains to tow a car. You can do a lot of things with chains. So those things aren't sinful, But what if Pastor Smith, Sunday morning, donned a pair of leather chaps and a black leather jacket with chains all over it and hopped on a big old Harley Davidson, big old hog, and came tootling into the parking lot with his his tailpipe just... Nothing sinful about any of that. But it could serve to be a pretty poor testimony, couldn't it? 
So you see, Paul is saying here, he's saying, listen, there are some things that are lawful for me to do, but they're not expedient. They're not appropriate. And they're not the most practical things for me to do. Further, he he clarified this by stating, all things edify not. And by that term, he's talking about all things are not useful for the purpose of teaching biblical principles. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talks about this ideal a bit. Um, A a practice was being done (coughs) in the church at Corinth, uh, just good economic practice. Uh, these these false temp, these false idols these temple worshippers would bring meat and and they would offer it unto their gods. Well, the the, wick, the 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 crooked false priests weren't weren't sacrificing this. They were taking it out back and selling it at a, at a cheaper price. And and some of the Corinthian Christians were buying that meat because it was cheaper and, and it made good economic sense. Uh, but some people were offended by this. And so Paul addresses this in, in, in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, and he said, while there is no sin in eating meat that was before offered on the idols, if doing so causes a weaker brother to be offended, he says that in such a case he will not exercise his liberty. He will choose not to participate in a practice that may cause another brother to become offended. Rather, he will abstain from such behavior so as not to offend his brother. Now, this is the true spirit of love that God desires us to possess. Not a spirit that exercises one's right to behave however they desire to behave, despite the effect it may have on other people. Not a haughty better-than-thou attitude, but a kind and considerate nature, a kind and compassionate attitude, one that considers others more than oneself. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves look not every man on his own things but every man also on the things of others so we will be in the world but jesus's prayer is that we will be not be of the world we are to be separate from the world set apart from them not in our day-to-day interaction I mean, you are going to work with unsaved people. You're going to be at the grocery store among unsaved people. You're going to commute riding transportation buses or trains among, you're going to fly in airplanes among unbelievers. Not in day-to-day interaction, but we are to be apart from them in close personal fellowship. We are to be separate. And in this, God acknowledges that we will be in fellowship with him. We, we read it a few moments ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, where he stated, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, or be in fellowship with you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, it is very important that we realize that our sonship, Our relationship as children of God is founded in the grace bestowed upon us by God the Father. 
So our relationship with God the Father is established before we reach the point of separation from the world. But it is our fellowship, not relationship, that is being addressed here. Our fellowship with the Father can be hindered by the wrong relationships and the wrong behaviors. Walking in fellowship with the world or, or walking in, 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 in conjunction with darkness will hinder our fellowship with the Father. In 1 John chapter 1, we read verses 5 through 10. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. In other words, when I as a believer am involved in, in, in fellowship with darkness, what evidence, what proof do I have that I am indeed in fellowship with God? Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And we see here from this passage that when we walk in fellowship with darkness, we have no evidence. Our testimony among those that, are, that would observe us, our testimony is ruined because of our fellowship with the world, our fellowship with darkness. Further, walking in fellowship with the world will put us at odds with the Father. In James chapter 4 and verse 4, James writes, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now this is quite a statement, is it not? Have you ever considered yourself an enemy of God? Have you? Well, if you walk in fellowship with darkness, if you walk in fellowship with the world, then what you are doing is you are, you are joining yourself to the camp of God's enemies. That's a, that's, a, that's a terrible thing to do. Allow me to give you a quick outline concerning relationships. First, acquaintances affect your attitudes acquaintances affect your attitudes proverbs chapter 13 and verse 20 he that walketh with wise men shall be wise but a companion of fools shall be destroyed your attitude will match those that you associate with we used to attend the Masters Men Conference. Any of you, how many of you ever went to one of the Masters? Well, we got a t-shirt there, right? And what did that t-shirt say? Anybody remember? Iron sharpeneth iron. Uh, Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen. Iron sharpeneth iron. So a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Listen, your attitude 
will match those that you associate with. You will become like those that you run around with. Hang around with critics, you'll become a critic. Hang around with scoffers, you'll become a scoffer. And we have to be careful about our acquaintances because the people that we associate with will affect our attitudes. But secondly, letter B, attitudes affect your actions. This is like the laws of physics. You can't get around it. Attitudes affect your actions. Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. Now your heart in biblical terms refers to your spirit, your attitude. And from the heart proceeds the actions of the man. Solomon expressed this in Proverbs chapter 23 and the first part of verse 7 where he states, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Acquaintances affect your attitudes. Your attitudes affect your actions. And let me say thirdly, your actions affect your aptitude. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. This I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Now by our aptitude, I am referring to our abilities. You know, the opportunities you have in life... The opportunities to do good or the opportunities to do wrong, by and large, are determined by your actions. You know, every decision we make has a consequence. Every decision has a consequence. Good decisions promote good consequences. Poor decisions yield bad consequences. And a Christian, if he's not careful by poor actions, can lose opportunities in his life or her life to serve the Lord. If you behave poorly on the job, you will lose your testimony. You will not, then you will not have opportunity to witness to those that you work with. And the same is true with everyone you meet. When your actions are such as, work, as the works of darkness... Your testimony as a Christian is, 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 is slandered. And therefore, you lose opportunities to serve the Lord. Paul expounded on this in Romans chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, where he states, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And what Paul is saying here is if we allow sin to rule in our lives, we will not be able to do the things that God wants us to do or that we would desire to do for God. So you see, God's will for you and I concerning our relationships is that we would be separate from the world. 
and that we would be separate from the practices of the world and that we would be separate from the influences of the world and that we would be separate from the darkness of the world and that we would walk in righteousness, the righteousness given to us, imputed to us through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So our relationships, God has a will concerning our relationships and and, and our acquaintances and how we interact with, with those around us. And it is important that we as God's children understand his will in these areas, in these matters. And that we make sure that we are following God's admonitions in our acquaintances, in our relationships. So we've considered God's will in our redemption. We've, we've looked at God's will in our relationships. And then thirdly, tonight I'd like to look at God's will concerning our righteousness. God's will concerning our righteousness. I'd like for you now to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. And here I'm going to read verses 8 through 11. Isaiah chapter 61 verses 8 through 11. We read here, For I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering, and I will direct their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And their seed shall be known among the Gentiles, and their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them, and they, that, that they are the seed which the Lord hath blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. For as the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. God's will concerning righteousness. Now, it is God's will that his children live in righteousness. But he hasn't left that to we ourselves. For we we do not live in our own righteousness... For we do not possess righteousness in and of ourselves. The Bible condemns us. Scripture condemns us as, as, as being unprofitable to God. Scripture declares us to be sinful. And it declares that the, every imagination of our heart is wicked continually. There is no righteousness in me. We read that earlier. Paul said, for I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. I have no righteousness. But it's God's will that I live in righteousness. But whose righteousness do we live in? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 we read, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You see, God has made us new creatures. Behold, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. 
Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And at the moment of our salvation, God made us a new creation. He changed us. And he imputed to us. He imputed his righteousness into us. That we would live in the righteousness of Christ Jesus our Lord. And he has indwelled us with the Holy Spirit to empower us to live in that righteousness. I'm going to talk about this some Sunday night when we talk about our riches in Christ. So I don't want to preach Sunday night's message tonight. Otherwise, you won't come Sunday night. And by the way, you don't want to miss Sunday night. It's, it's the second half of that, of that important message we preached last Sunday night. God has empowered us to live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11 we read, And such were some of you. He's talking about living in darkness. He goes on to say, But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And it is in the righteousness of Christ that I can live a holy life. And it is in the righteousness of Christ that you can live a holy life because that nature, that righteous nature of Christ has been imputed into us. Think about it as getting an injection. Huh? You go and you get an injection against polio or, or, or smallpox and all these other things. We as, most of us as children received those, those vaccinations. And what do they do? Well, they put that stuff in you and pssst. Well, when we were saved, God imputed us. He, 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 in a manner of speaking, he injected the righteousness of Christ into us. And that righteousness dwells within us in the person of the Holy Spirit and empowers and enables us to live in righteousness. Now, I'd like to um, conclude. Well, actually, I think I skipped the scripture. Philippians 3, 9. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, I'd like to conclude my study tonight. Don't get too excited. We're not done. Everybody looks, oh, yeah, we're getting out here. No, 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 no. Just, I'm, I'm, I'm saying I'm going to conclude it because I'm, I'm, I still got three pages of notes, so settle down. I'd like to conclude my study tonight by looking at some very distinct characteristics of the righteousness we need to project in our daily lives. As God's children. First is the element of thankfulness. The element of thankfulness. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. And everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now this is probably one of the most generic terms in our society today. It is so easy to say thank you. But is it a genuine expression of appreciation or is it just a common courtesy? I mean, we were all taught as children to say please and thank you, right? So we've, we've gotten to the point where we say thank you. You're at a restaurant. They bring you a glass of water. Thank you. They bring you a fork. Thank you. They bring your food. Thank you. It's become a common courtesy, I fear, in most and, and you know what? I, I honestly believe... That in far too many, the lives of far too many Christians is just a common courtesy to God. There is no real expression of gratitude. It's just kind of, oh, thanks, God. Yeah. It's almost like 
All right, well, I'll say thank you, but really, you know, you should have done it anyway. Now, Paul tells us that we're to give thanks in everything. Everything we should give thanks. We should give thanks for our life. We should give thanks for our provisions. Thanks for God's mercy. Thanks for God's grace. Thanks for God's word. Thanks for God's laws. Thanks for God's ministers. Thanks for God's election. Thanks for our redemption. Thanks for our regeneration. Thanks for our adoption. Thanks for the remission of sin. Thanks for our justification. Thanks for our hope in Christ. Thanks for the peace of God. Thanks for the joy of of the Lord. Thanks for the comforter. Thanks for our trials. Thanks for our sufferings. Thanks for our heartaches. Thanks for our disappointments. Everything means everything. And while it is easy to express thanks in the good times, it is not so easy to express thanks in the difficult times when things aren't running so smoothly. How often when we're having problems and troubles do we forget to stop, drop to our knees and look to the heaven and say, Thank you, Father. Thank you for all that you do for me. You see, we view troubles as a bad thing. But God knows we're going through them. We're, we're reminded that God is good, regardless of our circumstances. Think about Job. What did Job do wrong? The Bible says he, he was a man that eschewed evil, one that feared the Lord. Yet God allowed Job, God allowed Satan to, to afflict Job. But was God good? Was God good to Job? Of course he was good to Job. It didn't matter what Job's going through. God is good to Job. God is always good, regardless of the circumstances. In Job chapter 2, his wife comes to him and says, Why do you keep your integrity? Curse God and die. Verses 9 and 10, she says, Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain that integrity? Curse God and die. Wow, what a wife, huh? Don't you wish your wife was like that when you were having problems? Oh, just curse God and die. Verse 10, but he said unto her, thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What, shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this did not Job sin with his lips. Job understood that God is good regardless of the circumstances he may be facing. God's goodness is not dependent upon how life treats me. God's goodness is one of his immutable characteristics. And if we will live in the righteousness of Christ, then we will learn to be thankful in all things, good and bad. But then secondly, there's the element of contentment. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, we read, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Now, we live in a very materialistic world today. This world is all about getting all that you can get. But nothing could be farther from biblical principle. And I know that the people who will come out in the middle of the week, especially when the pastor is away, and they know he's away, I know that you know about this matter of contentment. But alas, as we do with all things, we too often and too quickly forget. And we need to be reminded. 
How many of you have ever heard the old saying, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence? Huh? You've heard that, how many of you have heard that saying before? Grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Yeah, but there's another saying that goes along with it. That is, but once you get there, you have to mow it as well. In other words, things are not always as good as they appear. Now, when we demonstrate an attitude of discontentment, then what are we saying? When we demonstrate discontentment, what we're saying is that God has failed to meet our needs. If we really believe that God knows what is best for us, and if we really believe that God always supplies our needs, then we will be happy and content with the things that God has given us because we know that God has given us what he wants us to have. Our example in this was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul writes, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus was content to do the Father's will, even if the Father's will meant death on the cross. So what about us tonight? Are we content? Are we content just to do the will of God regardless of where that leads us? Are we content to, 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 to live in God's will regardless of what that costs us? The element of contentment. And then thirdly, we see the element of conformity. In God's will... For our righteousness, we see the element of conformity. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, Paul states, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If we are living in the righteousness of Christ Jesus, our life will be transformed. And it will be conformed to the image of Christ. This most clearly is God's will for us, as we see in scriptures. In Romans 8, 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And it is easy to understand that if God predestinated us to conform to the image of his son, then it most clearly is his will that we be conformed into the image of his son. Now, as I stated last week, and I've stated many times, this is a work in progress. And I will never fully be in the image of Christ until I stand in his presence in heaven. But we are to live our lives striving to grow and to attain to this image. The element of conformity, the righteousness of God, will cause us to conform to be Christ-like in our lives and in our actions. And then, fourthly, and lastly, the element of forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Now, you, now listen to me. This is an element I had to come to reality with in my Christian life. Many, many years ago, Many, many years ago, probably, I don't know, 30 30 years ago, something like that, my aunt 
broke into my home and stole some very dear possessions to me. When my grandfather passed away, he, he left me a set of, of, of Texas Ranger pistols he had, Colt 45s, a beautiful, beautiful brace of pistols, and, and, and he left me some other things. And my wife had, had worked many hours to buy me a camera, a, a nice 35-millimeter camera. She broke into my home, and she stole those items. And, and, and she never would confess to it, never would admit it, although we knew it was her. We had evidence that it was her. And for many years, I taught Sunday school classes, and I, I worked in the ministry, and I talked about forgiveness, and I talked about how we have to learn to forgive, and we have to do. And one day, I was teaching a Sunday school lesson to my teenagers on forgiveness. And as sure as I'm talking to you, the Holy Spirit broke my will. And I realized what a hypocrite I was because I had never forgiven her. I held a grudge against her. I went home that afternoon and I called her on the phone. And I told her, I said, Rosemary, I forgive you. Forgive me for what? Doesn't matter. I forgive you for what you did. And I did forgive her. And the next time I went back to visit family, I could, I could face her. And I could hug her. And I could, I could tell her I love her. And I had forgiven her. How can we possibly claim that we are living in the will of God if we harbor ill will toward anyone? But especially toward one of our brothers or sisters in Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 22 through 24, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Here the Lord is talking about a hatred in our heart for our brother. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there remember that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, then come and offer thy gift. And here Jesus is saying, don't offer me your hollow righteousness if you are running around at odds, backbiting and slandering and criticizing one another. Don't you dare come to me with offerings when your heart is filled with bitterness and hatred. It is God's will that his children dwell together in unity and in peace. Don't live in rebellion against God in this matter. Go to those that you are odds with and tell them that you forgive them. Do not withhold your forgiveness from them and ask them to forgive you. Consider what Paul said in scripture where he stated forgiving one another in in Ephesians 4.32, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. God has forgiven us freely. He's forgiven us unconditionally. He's forgiven us eternally. 
Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? And Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times, seven times. And the lesson here is that if you can forgive your brother 490 times, then you can forgive him 491 times. Listen, do you want, do you want God to put a limit on the number of times that he will forgive you? Do you want that tonight? Because I don't know about you, but I've needed God to forgive me way more than seven times. Matter of fact, in 31 years as a Christian, I've probably needed God to forgive me way more than 490 times. I don't want to put a limit on how many times God's going to forgive me. So don't you go putting a limit on the number of times that you'll forgive someone else. You know, I wish I had more time because digging into the will of God in every aspect of our life would take us quite a while. But I don't have time. Uh, I've already gone too long tonight. You're going to have to continue studying on your own and digging out God's will for every aspect of our lives. But we've looked at God's will concerning redemption. We looked at God's will concerning relationships. And we've looked at God's will concerning righteousness. And I hope that we can learn to conform to the will of God in all of these areas of our life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we have together. I thank you for those that have come out tonight. And, and Lord, I, I pray that what was said would, would, be, would edify and would build us up and would cause us to examine ourselves, Lord, and, and, and to, to, to conform in our lives to that image of Jesus, to live in that righteousness which, which we're enabled to do through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Bless each who are here tonight. Thank you for all these things. Bring our pastor home safely to us that he, that he can preach to us again on Sunday. And we'll thank you and we'll praise you for all these things. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.